Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I just want to say again to everyone who uh, writes in and who uh, sends uh, tremendous, wonderful uh, tweets and emails and Facebook messages. uh, You guys are uh, incredibly supportive. And when I started this podcast, I had no idea how uh, incredibly... uh, wonderful uh it would be and how i hoped it would be inspiring to people and i hope that it could make a a difference with the guests that we have on and it's uh it's nice to see that it is and so i will start as i usually do um with a cold open that has a sort of relationship in some way or six degrees of separation to my guest uh, showrunner extraordinaire, executive producer, writer, Ricky Blit. Um, I believe the first time that I ever, I, I think I could be high, I could, I don't smoke, but I thought that in some way I might have run into him at a show that he worked on a long time ago called the Jeff Foxworthy Show. Uh, and for those of you who don't know the landscape back then, this was a very uh, interesting kind of uh, show because if I'm not mistaken, it started off on ABC. It was getting like like 20 to 25 million people a week watching the show. It was like a top 20 show. But as oftentimes happens, the networks have a vision of themselves 
how they want to be, just like people have a vision of how they want to be. So when you leave the house, uh, you know, uh, I left the house, uh, you know, looking, you know, sort of contemplated casual and part homeless. Uh, my guest today uh, left the house kind of hip homeless looking. Uh, and the production staff that I have here as an array of people that are working here that, that have, you know, some are in T-shirts like Ari and, and, and moccasins. And Max here is, is dressed in a beautiful suit. And Sarah it looks like she's uh, getting ready for the Academy Awards and eating strawberries. Uh, and uh, so it's like a... Everybody wants to present themselves in a different way and networks are no different and film studios are no different. So I'll give you an example, for instance, like when Warner Brothers Film Studio made a movie with Jamie Kennedy called Malibu's Most Wanted, it came out and I believe it made between 35 and $40 million at the box office. The movie cost, you know, a ridiculously low amount of money to make. And they made millions of dollars off the movie. Did they make, you know, Lord of the Rings money? No, but they made millions of dollars. But they weren't going to cocktail parties and social gatherings, walking around saying, hey, we did Malibu's Most Wanted. Because it wasn't a cool thing. It wasn't maybe the hippest thing. It maybe wasn't the thing that they wanted to rally around. They wanted to rally around something, their, their movies that that really they thought were just the most cutting edge, unique and special things. I imagine if it had made, you know, 200 million at the box office, they probably might've been different, but the bottom line is, is it was profitable and, but they weren't talking about it. And on the networks, you know, up until as, as recently as maybe eight years ago, you would have things on the networks that did really, really well. And but it just wasn't the tone of what the network wanted. And Foxworthy show, for some reason, the networks perceived that kind of comedy as a lower brow, uh, you know, around the redneck humor of Jeff Foxworthy. They felt it wasn't what they wanted. When in turn, Foxworthy was a real family guy. He was a real wonderful, he had a wonderful voice about family and, and, and which was really, really driven home on the show. And the show turned out to be very little about what he talked about in his stand-up act and more about what he never showed in his stand-up act, which was what a real great family man he was. And so if I'm not mistaken, ABC let the show go. And then it moved to NBC and NBC said, hey, you know, fuck it. If you guys aren't going to take the 20 million people a week, we will. And um, and so there was something that happened on the show that I remembered that really uh, showed me a side of of comedy that I I hadn't really seen as much in the television world. So what happened was you had Jeff Foxworthy, who was like a king. I mean, the guy literally had sold, sold more records than Elvis and uh, uh, and Slim Whitman or whatever the guy's name or Zam Fear or the pan flute sold more records than the Beatles and Elvis combined. Yeah, OK. But anyway, so 
he was a big, big, he was a big deal. And he was at the height of you might be a redneck if, and many of you remember all those jokes. My favorite being you might be a redneck if your working television sits on top of your non-working television. That's one of my favorites. Um, and so this particular episode was about uh, Jeff Foxworthy's character and his younger brother, who was played by uh, my client, Jay Moore who did a stint as Jeff Foxworthy's brother on the show. And there was a thing where they decided they were going to go into a uh, open mic or a, uh, a bar area or something where there was an audience and do like a, uh, a comedy set in this particular bar. And the whole gist of the show and the dynamic between Jay's character and Jeff's character was Jeff was the responsible guy. He was married. He had the job. He was centered. He was grounded. And of course, Jay, his brother, was the uh, terminal fuck up, the guy who had no responsibility, couldn't do anything right and could never make anything happen the right way. And so they have this friendly kind of thing against with themselves where they do some comedy at this local pub or whatever it is. And uh, Jeff is very confident. He's not a comedian in the show and neither is Jay. It's just a thing where you go up and you try to be funny. And naturally Jeff goes up and his character completely bombs and nobody laughs at him and it's it's out and it's written the way that Jay would go up and do some material that was written for him and get big laughs and there would be a conflict that ensues because of course in sitcoms you need to have the discoveries and you need to have the conflicts to drive the story and so but Jay was always a guy no matter what point in his career he was always a guy who took risks he was always a guy that uh did things a little bit out of the box and never really went with what was written on the page. Yes, he would give it to you your way on a sitcom, that first take in front of a live audience. He'd do it your way once. He might do it your way twice. But the second time, he was always going to do it his way. And at the end of the episode and when it was all edited together, Chances are what you'd see in the episode was not what the writers wrote, but what he wrote. And on this particular uh, night, he had decided the night before to write a ton of formulaic, you might be a redneck jokes that were written in his voice that were written that were written with his words. But he took the formula of you might be a redneck. And so the second or third take, he goes up in front of a live audience and starts doing an act with You Might Be a Redneck If with the own jokes that he's written. And he is fucking killing. I mean, the crew is laughing. The craft service is laughing. The executive producers are laughing. Maybe even the man who's right here who might have been there was laughing. Everybody was laughing. Except for one person, Jeff Foxworthy. He was not a happy man. And I remember after that take finished and uh, they said, cut, moving on. 
I remember the look on Jeff's face, and I'll never forget it. And during the break, he must have talked to the executive producers, and they had to sit down with Jay, and they let Jay know how unhappy that Jeff was. And Jay went up to Jeff and said, look, man, I didn't mean anything of it. I just was in the moment and I wanted to do something funny and I thought you'd be flattered that I was doing a part of the material and the, the way you deliver it. I thought it'd be an homage to you. But what Jay learned and what I learned is that when you're the top dog on a set or anywhere else, you have to know how to navigate. You have to know how to figure out how far to push somebody and how far not to push somebody. And I always felt that after that day, his relationship with Foxworthy changed forever. Even though he apologized, he made it right, they had some great scenes together. But when it comes to artists, you know, if you're working at like the Actors Gang in Hollywood with Academy Award winner Tim Robbins and you're one of the actors there, he stresses to his actors, look, if you see somebody do something on stage, go do it again the next night. Go do whatever they want to do. If you're a magician and Harry Blackstone Jr. did the razor blade trick, you're allowed to do the razor blade trick. If you're Guns N' Roses and you're opening up for Aerosmith, and you're the, have the 50th highest rated album on the charts, and Aerosmith is number one, and you're closing your set with Mama Kin, you're allowed to do that, and Aerosmith is honored that you do that. They're even honored that you pass them on the billboard charts during the tour, and you're the opening act. But one thing you learn when you're in the comedy business as a comedian, never, ever do any part or any kind of homage or any kind of clip or any kind of formula of another comedian's routine or else you will receive a wrath like no other wrath you've seen before. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, 
and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. All right, welcome back to Industry Standard. Uh, it's Barry Katz, my guest today. Ah, this guy, I'm so excited. We're going to have such a great time. I am embarrassed to let you know that I haven't spent a lot of time with this guy. But when I see his name on a project, I know one thing and one word comes to my mind. Respect. Everything he works on, respect. He's like uh, Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead. This guy, the, the main character in that book, he never seems to do anything unless it has some thing about it that's just so strong and undeniable and or he just won't work on something. So to tell you a little about this guy, uh, just recently, by the way, uh, I will tell you this. He shot a new Fox TV comedy pilot called No Place Like Home, starring Jane Kaczmarek and John Heater. Uh, he, cre he created it and wrote it and is executive producing it, along with Big Bang star Johnny Galecki, also from Suicide Kings, which I remember, and the former head of ABC, who uh, I sold the show to a long time ago, uh, Steve McPherson. Uh, he also wrote and directed an independent film, Hit by Lightning, last summer, starring John Cryer. And he's written, created, and been an executive producer on two previous comedy series called The Winner, starring Rob Caudry. I hope I pronounced that right. And Romantically Challenged, starring Alyssa Milano. He was one of the original writers on the unbelievably successful animated show Family Guy. And he wrote the only episode to have ever been the first banned from airing. The episode was, of course, titled When You Wish Upon a Weinstein. And the episode was about Peter, Peter being bad with money and praying for a Jew to help him. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote uh, the movie, the controversial yet hilariously funny movie with Johnny Knoxville called The Ringer and with uh, Johnny Knoxville and Catherine Heigl about a man to, pretending to be uh, a special needs person to fix the Special Olympics for Spock Searchlight. He's done so many different projects, so many different great things, and we're going to talk about all of them. But why waste any more time? Please welcome my guest today, the man, the myth, the respected one, Ricky Blit. I think that's the first time I've ever heard any of those adjectives <laughs> tied to me. But well, that's okay. There's there's a first time for everything. I'm trying to have some first myself in the last uh, 13 months, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's good to see you, man. Nice to see you. We're going to have fun today. Uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to talk about a lot of things. Um, what I always like to do, though, if you don't mind, is I always like to start the podcast sort of where you were you know, whatever it was, a month or a year or before you ever had an inkling or a, anything in your mind that you ever wanted to be in this business. So, you know, like, where were you growing up? Where were you? What were the circumstances? And take our audience through um, what happened to make you want to be in show business. Well, I was in, Can I'm from Canada. So I was in Montreal for, I was in Montreal for way too many years. That's why I've always like kind of identified 
with late bloomers because I lived with my parents until I was like about 32. So you're like Christ. Well, I, I've, I've been told I'm like Christ a lot. Usually I get, you killed Christ. But, but, in, this, but in this one example, I, I've gotten that. You got, you got that? Yeah. And comedy careers. But Christ normally is the one that's... By the a, way, we had to do the Family Guy thing that I wrote that was banned for Fox because Peter is singing outside the window about uh, when I wish upon a Jew, whatever. And, he's, and, he, and he has lyrics about he, Hebrew people I've adored even though they killed my lord we had to we had to change that for fox to i don't think they killed my lord which i guess is one notch better whatever like that you know but so wait so so you're so you're in montreal which is one of the most beautiful cities in the world and if anybody's out here if hasn't visited montreal do yourself a favor go there and if you like comedy or any kind of entertainment comedy go during the summer the montreal comedy festival it's one of the greatest uh, festivals in the world is incredible. But anyway, so you're in Montreal, you're living with your family. Yeah, Are you guys poor, rich, middle class? Whatever will make this podcast sound most interesting. <laughs> okay, so you're homeless with, living at home. I was homeless living with a black family, <laughs> raped by an Italian mother. Okay. If that's... <laughs> If that'll help you in any way, <laughs> you, you got that's, me out of the house. I'm that's sweet good. enough to play along with anything you want. Very inspirational. Thank you. No, I was with a kind of a slightly upper middle class uh, Jewish family in, in 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 Montreal. Now, what are you doing to make a living that you have to, to you have to live at home? Or are you just banking up all the money you're making uh, from the job you're on? No, I mean I had when I was like. 22 and I was in was I was in went to McGill College McGill course, University great college and and I I was taking like this English English I'm trying to remember even what the communications whatever which pretty much sets you up to be homeless like there's nothing you can do with that degree there's absolutely nothing you're qualified I, to drive any cab in Montreal well except for me because you might learn over the course of this thing I've never learned how to drive a car you, you might have one of the most pathetic people sitting on your couch you ever had, but I've never learned how to drive well, a car. So well, I we have something in common. You never, do you, have you never driven? No, we're both pathetic. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> for, for a second I thought, for a second I thought I actually had a true soulmate, except you're just, you're just playing down to my level. You actually do drive and, and function yes, like I, that. Yes, I, 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 well, parts of me function, yes. Oh, do you? Okay. All right. I think already you're ahead of me, but, but, uh, but yeah, I was in Montreal and I, I, it was weird because when I when I was twenty two, whatever, I sold a script to CBC, which is one of our big networks in Canada, and it was almost this weird thing where it was like a sitcom thing. I sent sent a script in; they immediately wanted to. Okay, uh, so well, you're living at home till thirty two, but early on, you you wrote a script. So what 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 was happening before you thought I'd like to write something? Well, I think I always knew that th there was one thing I could do in life, and pretty much everything else I couldn't. That is is write comedy and stuff. But I never I never gave myself. But a how did you to. how did you know that? What made you know that? I more? just kind of knew that kind of growing up I knew I think almost in high school I remember reading a book by Woody Allen without feathers and that was felt like this big connection like just was it was the kind of thing where I knew I would write funny things and in school or you know so the book inspired you Woody Allen's book the without book feathers the book inspired me and the different 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 movies of his that I saw whatever and I just do you mind do you mind telling our audience like uh like sort of a reader's digest uh crib note synopsis of without feathers who haven't read it uh, and 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 what was it what was it that inspired you about the book and without feathers and funny thing is because Woody without feathers was just a bunch of silly short stories he'd have like lines that would say Referred to his manservant who said whose elevator shoes, curiously enough, made him three inches short. <laughs> it's like really nonsensical things. And it just was like, okay, those are the silly kind of things 
I write down or whatever. And just, it was just quite a while before I realized, okay, I'm not going to, you know, it, it takes a while till you realize how are you going to manifest that? You know? And what Woody Allen movies moved you? Well, I mean, I, I saw all these movies when I was young, like Sleeper and Love and Death and all those kind of things. And his, his were like really, really funny movies early on. It was just... And amazing. so that made you want, that made you say, I want to be a writer. Now you wrote a half hour uh, script for the CBC. Uh, how did you learn how to structure a half hour script without ever doing it before? I don't know. I, I'm not just easy on the eyes. I just, <laughs> I worked it out in my, I mean, I just would, I think if, it, like, if you have an instinct for something, like that's why sometimes, I know writers a lot of times will buy those like Sid Field screenwriting books and stuff. Yeah, Sid Field, by the way, you should always, if you're in this business and you want to learn how to write a screenplay, Sid Field, S-Y-D, Field like Field of Dreams, uh, wrote a book called Screenplay, which is uh, has millions of paperbacks, and you have to read that book. It's required reading. Well, now, now that you've spelled his name, and I'll contradict that. No, the thing is, it is a great book, but for me personally, who's obsessive enough as it is, I worry about those kind of things because I tend to worry about overanalyzing what if God, it's coming it's, if it's coming naturally. So almost, for you, that book hurt you. In that book, I tried to avoid it almost because it was like I didn't want to in intellectualize about. If you give me a chance to intellectualize about something, I'll suck the joy out of it. So, well, I think so. that's, but I no, but I do think that's great advice because some people, everybody needs different kinds of things. Like we mentioned, Jay Moore earlier in the in the show. Jay Moore has never ever. Um, taken an acting class yet he can go in for any it doesn't matter if he auditions for clint eastwood or you know clint holmes he has probably a 50 50 chance of getting something always right. has and then there's people like um who are great actors who have acting coaches on the set who are academy award-winning actors uh you know like dicaprio and helen hunt and people like that who, who i've, just I've had both of those by the way Oh, there you go. DiCaprio and Helena. There you go. Fantastic. A little bit of my, my sexual dossier. I love whatever. that. That's fantastic. <laughs> so the fact is, is that what's, what works for you is what works for you. And don't, you know, there's no, there's no rules. And but so for a lot, you, a lot of people that, that's, that's why I've given that advice to friends who really want to do that. And I think that it, that actually, it's, it's the wrong advice to tell people not to use that kind of book if it helps somebody. For some people, it really is helpful. But I think if you feel you're starting to do it and, and, if you feel like it's coming naturally or that you're having an instinct for it, then you can avoid those people who are saying, no, no, you have to do this because then you can get inside your head for something that's coming naturally. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, 
and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So it. it's totally a subjective thing, you know. Got it. So you so you write the you write the half hour, and how do you form? How do you know how to format? I didn't. I didn't. Probably didn't do it exactly right. I was. I was in college. There was like some, not very great, you know, great sitcom that was on, and I. But if you didn't do it right, it wouldn't have sold. No, but I did. I guess I did it right in terms of material. They laughed at the material, but they didn't. I hadn't formatted it exactly right. I hadn't done everything exactly right. And when I sent it in, they called me that night. It was very bizarre. It's like as a writer. You have this fantasy, like after you hand in a script that either people will, you have this unnatural fantasy about two hours after you send a script, that either people will be loving it so much they can't form words to tell you how much they love it, or that it's the worst thing any, anybody's ever seen. And what's hard for a writer, uh, just so our audience knows, is like if you're a performer, whether you're a musician or a comedian or a magician or whatever you do, you know, somebody comes to see you or, you know, and right there, it's immediate gratification. Right. Or even if you send them a link, it's very hard not to click a link and watch something. It's almost impossible when you get it. It doesn't matter what you get. You just have to do it. You can't not, you, you can't scroll past it. But a script, you can because you're like, oh, fuck, this is a time commitment. Mm-hmm. I got to sit down and do this. So you never know as a writer when you're going to get the feedback and how long it's going to be. You know, every agent in town likes to have a, there's a phrase that they use, I, I believe, which is the weekend read. And, you know, they start compiling their scripts during the week of what they're going to read that weekend. And then they put them all in their bag. Now, of course, they don't put them in their bag unless they let their tactile. Now they just have them in their iPads or their computers. But, you know, they have to, they read these things and then they go through them and then there is a wait. Right. And oh, yeah. so you sent it in and immediately. They well, it was called. weird because only because I had this fantasy in my mind that I'd come home from school and that my father would come to the door and say, oh, they read it. I'm not sure because I had FedExed it to them. It would have, had, they, would, they literally would have had to take it out of the envelope, had an extreme reaction and call and that's exactly what happened. But this is the smart thing you do, you did that we talk about all the time in the podcast and I'm a firm believer in and I'll, I'll say it until uh, I probably stop talking which will probably be on my deathbed is that FedEx is the greatest tool in the world. If you want to get somebody, I don't care I don't care if you work at McDonald's and you want to get a message to your manager in a special way. Send them a FedEx, and if this, you don't, this was before the email stuff. That's before. right. There was no yeah. There was well, you no could send it regular option. mail, or right, you could right. send it for the post office, or whatever. But when you send something FedEx, again, I tell you guys, even if you don't have any money, and you're let's say you're in Chicago, and you want to get something to somebody in Chicago that you want to guarantee that they'll open, again, go to FedEx, get an envelope, get a slip, fill it out the way you would fill it out seal it up and hand deliver it there and they will never know that it wasn't a regular FedEx and they will open it. Everyone opens a FedEx and that yeah, was very smart of you back then. Well, I mean, I, 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 it was, there was less options about it and I, I think I, I took it kind of seriously, but I did that, sent it in. They ended up airing that episode. They ended, had me write one other one and then it was like this weird thing where you kind of... So in other words, you wrote it for an existing show that the, I did a the, the existing show that yes. you thought was horrible or not written well. Yes. <laughs> and I, and I, did it, I did it just as loud as... And so you, so, you, so you wrote that script. They ended up shooting it. Did you, when did you find out they were going to shoot it? Well, the weirdest thing, like I said, when I had that fantasy of like what... 
and exaggerated what's the best that could happen. That exactly happened. My father coming to the door saying, the CPC called you. They read it. They want to do this episode. They want to bring you to Toronto. I lived in Montreal, so they want to bring you to Toronto where they shot the show. They you know, used it as one story in the thing, and they hooked it up with another writer I never even met. Like we co-wrote that episode and never had any interaction. But you already wrote the episode. I wrote I wrote my own spec episode. It's just my, my own thing. So they didn't use that one. They used half of they it. They used one. half of it. Got they it. used half of it. And then they had me write another one, which they didn't air. And then... What did you get paid in Canada to write a script? I think back then it was like... It was about eight grand. Eight which, grand. Which, which was unbelievable. That was the know? most money you ever made in your life. Yeah. I mean, it was, it. that was... It was incredible. And your dad, you said your dad came in and told you that you, what was your relationship with your dad at the time? Was he proud of you or not proud of you? No, he was, he was proud actually. I no, mean, before that, this happened. Before, before, before this happened, he was proud. I think he, my, my father was always looked at it like, okay, th this was my, my, I have a brother who's a very famous artist who does the covers, does the covers of the New Yorker. He did, he did the very famous, uh, when Obama was running for president and they had that, cover of the New Yorker where it was kind of like him and Michelle and Obama in kind of almost Muslim attire, just sort of depicting how the right saw them. Mm -hmm. and, and my brother did that. And it was the most surreal thing coming home from a, a vacation and seeing like on every show pretty much was doing it, was talking about that. Like Larry King had Barack Obama, the candidate on and was asking him about it. And I remember the only time I ever lost respect for Obama is when he was doing the unbelievably politically correct thing of just kind of going, Oh, well, it was, you know, clumsy attempt at satire. And I was amused because, because I was imagining if somebody was evaluating my own script like a president, but not going after what was offensive and just going, yeah, it had no second act. <laughs> it just seemed like the oddest thing where it was sudden he was just aesthetically breaking down what my brother did. And I thought it was a really cowardly thing of Obama just to, to go to the, the PC thing. It was so... Draw, my brother doesn't doesn't see it the way I this doesn't reflect his political views, but he 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 did it so as a love letter to Obama and the fact like parroting how the right saw him that it was it was so obvious it was that that it was making fun of anybody who saw him that way. But he went the most politically correct route of just oh I guess that's what but he said. This country was right. built on freedom of speech. No, if and... he had, if he had couched it that way, but usually usually there is an opposition to that because. It can lead to some kind of, just in case there's any mis misinterpretation, the politician will always do the, the safest thing. That's why the same thing with networks, even when you were describing the movie I wrote before about <laughs> fixing the Special Olympics. I mean, that was <laughs> the toughest thing, pitch I've ever had to do, where I had to, and they were so cool about it, the Special Olympics. We flew to meet Tim Shriver, you know, who, who in Washington and had the most difficult discussions because I had lines where like a mobster is looking at the guy who wins all the time and go, kind of going... Jesus, that, and saying it reverentially with love, like that son of a bitch is the Deion Sanders of retards. And I was trying to explain to the, the head of the Special Olympics how I could do, I said, and I said, you have to show how people really talk to show the opposite thing. And we, and political correctness, to me, political correctness is always one group say, telling somebody else how they should feel. Is somebody kind of putting their ham around you and going, well, as a Jewish person, you should feel this. As a gay person, you should feel this. And that's how I kind of felt with that is that, Everybody was saying, You're, anybody associated with this movie is going to hell. And at the end of the movie, we got such an outpouring of love from special needs families who went, God bless you for not talking down to us, for making them the kids who were sometimes 
were egotistical or sometimes swore or sometimes just wanted the girl or whatever, just were human beings. Because I always used to say there was always that moment in movies like, what was that movie with Juliette Lewis? The other girl, the the other girl, I don't remember what, what it was. Where there would always be that kind of thing, like, well, there'd always be that speech in these movies where they're so beautiful and so pure of soul as if they're describing an animal or something. And there was something, it was just interesting because the the biggest opposition you get from political correctness a lot of times aren't the people that you're really offending, it's the people. And you're, to and you're totally right about that because people want to, the piss taken out of them. They want to know that they feel great. That's not to say that when that movie came out, there weren't certain groups of special needs uh, organizations that were upset because there were, but there were also mo the majority of them weren't. And, I think that we were amazed by the fact with that kind of thing. Believe me, you hear the opposition, yeah. you hear the opposition and, and we didn't, it was overwhelming. That was the thing I expected to be 50, 50, some, you know, and, and when I got into this because you were asking about my, my father's thing, my, my father from an early age knew that my brother had this skill from about five or six, he could draw for me. It was kind of later, like finding out at around 20, 21, I could actually do this. So, so, so. And, and I, and I'm just, I, I want to just, just say one thing about the ringer and we're going to go back and we're going to talk about the ringer a lot, but you know, what you said about certain groups and how it is. And again, we talked about early on the cold open about the navigation. Right. You, you have to know the consequences of what you're doing and what the good can be and what the bad can be. And I remember that I remember when I was a, a host at a comedy club in Boston, this club called play it again, Sam's. And there was a local comedian who was amazing, and he was the kind of guy, his name was Mike Donovan. He's the kind of guy who never cared about doing television, never wanted to leave Boston, and was true to his art form, which was a Boston-centric kind of comedy. And he would always close off his act with this uh, very famous uh, sportscaster announcer for the Celtics named Johnny Most, who actually passed away a while ago and actually was doing telecasts and radio when he'd lost both his legs and he was always smoking and drinking and whatever. But he did a famous bit that he used to do in Boston all the time about family feud and how Richard Dawson, he called him the master of herpes because he used to kiss everybody. And he always closed it off with this routine, one family versus the mongoloid family. Something you eat with a fork. Yes, the mongoloid family. Uh, soup. <laughs> Wrong. And it would just be like this whole routine right. that just went on and on and was just as politically incorrect as it was. It was just he broke you down. So even if you were the most rigid and you're like, I am not laughing, I am not laughing, by the end, he just, he completely took you and the crowd. And always killed. And I remember this one night, as comedians do, they wait at the, at the outside after a show, probably for their validation for people walking by and shaking their hands and saying, you're great, you're great, you're great. You can always tell, uh, by the way, comedians who um, have the most self-esteem for their craft versus those who have the least. The ones with the least self-esteem for their craft are the ones waiting outside the door 
just hoping that the audience will come past them and say, great job. You were the best. Hey, I like you better than that liner. You were incredible. You were incredible. This isn't counting the people who are self-promotion or handing things out. That's a different kind of comic. I'm just talking about somebody because you'll never, you know, you rarely see a headline unless he's selling merchandise, you know, doing that. So, but we're, there's no place to go in this place and people are walking by and I'll never forget this. And, and this speaks to what you're saying of how, again, you just, and what we're talking about, you never know. There are two young men. They're like um, the age of, let's say, you know, Ari and Max here. And um, they're on either side of uh, what appears to be their mother. And they're holding her and she's walking out and she is like hyperventilating, crying. Like just so unbelievably, like, like literally a tragedy has just happened to her. And she came to a comedy show. It's very rare when you see somebody come to a comedy show and then they leave like with a nervous breakdown after a guy like crushes the place. And she stops in front of Mike Donovan. Everybody shaked his hand. I see everybody shaking his hand out. You're amazing. You're amazing. I'll never forget this. She looks at them. She's crying. She said, how dare you? How dare you go up on a stage in front of people and make light of retarded people? My son's retarded. I've dealt with this my whole life. What have you ever dealt with? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. What a bitch. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry. I think I've learned the wrong lesson. From and this. she and she walked up the stage, and I and I could see the look on. <laughs> that's funny. I could see the look on Mike Donovan's uh, face, and it really affected him. But again, when you do something, when you're doing art, like you're doing in writing, and you're writing with edge, like you write, you're not in a situation. You mentioned Obama, which is fascinating. You know. Obama is the president of the United States and 48 of a hundred people don't want him to be president of the United States, but he's the president of the United States. You know, Will Rogers used to say, if 1% of the people love you, you're going to be a huge star. So the way you have operated from the very beginning is you write something that you believe is special, has an edge and you write it like, hey, I'm okay. 100% of the people aren't going to like this. But as long as the majority of the people like it, I think it, also if you're, if, okay. if you're going at it with sincere, a sincere direct, in other words, even when I first, I pitched The Ringer the, to the Farrelly brothers, who I've worked with a lot throughout the years. And Peter is, if, a lot of people don't know about this side of Peter, but he's just, an, he's a religious guy. And I mean, not a, he he's a believer, you know, and and, and he's somebody who, who that touches the way he lives, and he's always had a huge heart for the underdog, and he's always been a big brother to people with special needs. When I pitched and him, and then something about Mary, he was one of the oh, first. Absolutely. He was one of the first guys in film that took a special needs person right. and made them, you know, put them in and made them huggable and lovable. And it was just a wonderful dynamic in that film, and you weren't. That's, that's, what, that's well. That's what comes. That's what comes out. And if I, when I went in to pitch that, I'll never forget. I, I mean, I, he got it, and just the shock of it. Everybody would say this is one of the funniest things I've ever heard. But well, but get the fuck out of my office. Like, there's no way that anybody could could really do a studio movie about fixing the Special Olympics. But he got it, and he got the fact that the at the end of the day, 
the butt of the joke would almost be more in the Knoxville character who felt arrogantly he could just beat them easily, and he couldn't. They had to really push him and stuff, and, and there was a way... There was no way he he would have done it if it was like a mean-spirited thing. That's why when you told that story about the comic, in all seriousness, there was one moment in that. I had a scene that we didn't end up using where they're all acting, fooling around in Knoxville who's bonding with, with, with the special needs guys. And at one point, one of the one of the Manly Challenge guys turns to him and says, we're retarded. What's your excuse? <laughs> and, and, and I got a big laugh, except one of the guys who had Down syndrome, or a terrific actor on the, in the movie, got really upset. And then, and he said, you know, he was really upset at hearing the word retarded like that. And that's when I thought, okay, it's all fine for me to be this Hollywood person preaching about this stuff. Well, in that case, I was wrong. It's like there wa that wasn't the typical bullshit political correctness of somebody of the way I saw that Obama moment or somebody not saying not what's in their heart, but what's will will focus group well or something. That was a moment where it was like shit, let's take this out. Let's take, that joke isn't worth making that one guy uncomfortable. It's interesting you said that because when Dr. Phil was here, uh, I asked him, was there ever any show where he, something happened in a show that he either lost uh, control and after it was over, he felt like he, something got to him or there was something about a show that bothered him. And out of 2,000 shows that he's done, it's so amazing that you said this. He said there was one show when where this girl kept saying over and over again, you know, you know, my brother, he's 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 retarded. This guy. I mean, just using it as a word right. to describe her brother who was not special needs, and he lost his train of thought, mm -hmm. and he wanted to say something and chastise her about using that word because he felt the word was as derogatory as the right. n-word might be in the right. nfl right now um and he never got a chance to do it and he always was bothered by it so here it was you were hearing that from somebody who was a special needs the, the person. fact that it was it was the person directly because even the story you just told me with dr phil like that to me is i could imagine somebody being like like my th instinct sometimes is 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 to defend the person who has the right to free speech or the right to express themselves comedically when let's say that woman was describing her, her child and so go, we acts retarded or something like that. In a moment like that, I feel there is sometimes there's this Nazi kind of political correctness where you go, you cannot say that word. You cannot say that. Well, in that case, her child wasn't retarded and she wasn't meaning it like that. And sometimes people could say you're retarded and just mean, mean it in, in a non loaded, not harm, harmful way. It can be used like that. But I think that there's such a, there's such a reflex these days that sometimes it's, it, it, it's, it's, you know, but, but you would do that. You would speak like that, but there are words that you wouldn't say. There are words I wouldn't say, but I, but I, and the reason why you wouldn't say them is been the same reasons why the other ones aren't. It's just, there's a group of people who you feel could damage you more than they would in the others. And that's well, why well, one is also, more accessible. Also, also the ones that, that will be like, in that case, that was a direct thing. Somebody with special needs saying you use that word and that offended me. And it's specifically in that context, then it was like, okay, but, but in most cases, political correctness is saying you can't use that word, even though it's clear to everybody that you weren't using it harmfully, you weren't using it to mock somebody with special needs, you were saying it because that's become a buzzword for being lazy intellectually or whatever. You know, it, it, in most cases, I don't agree with it. They say, that's, like I say, the same thing as that Jewish episode I wrote for Family Guy, that was banned. It was banned until Adult Swim finally put it on, and then a few years later, Fox said, "Okay, I guess the world as we knew it doesn't didn't end." 
and they decided to put it on, but it was so clear to anybody with ha- with half a brain that it, that it was he, they were they were parroting Peter Griffin stupidity of looking at all Jews being the exactly the same. But context doesn't matter anymore. Like years ago, we used to be way ahead of where we are now. We used to do like shows like All in the Family. Yeah, you couldn't do a live action show with those words you wrote for Family Guy. No, you could. You could never get it on. It has to be animated. And you couldn't do. You couldn't do. You can make fart jokes. You can do things like that these days. But we've gone way backwards with things like all in the you put on all in the family now and see repeats of it and you go you hear the words that they're using and 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 we were way more evolved back then not now because we were we were parroting some bigot who was who was looking at it like that and it takes all the teeth out of it but what's odd is you can do all these edgy things in animation but uh one of the characters couldn't pull down their pants and moon somebody else or that would be censored. Which way, those... So you, so an animated character couldn't pull down their pants and moon somebody cuz showing somebody's ass is more derogatory to the network executives to the public than it is talking well, about. Well, using it. certain I mean that's why I say that the that when it's depressing when you watch All in the Family because I thought that was such a great show. It was incredible. I mean, you know, the, that's to me what's missing so much from from television are shows that can make you laugh and cry in the same episode. Right. And that's, you know, but what's interesting about you is you're a huggable and lovable guy. I'm adorable. Whether you're, you're adorable. <laughs> I'm five foot two and the most harmless man in the it's world. It's incredible. I, I actually am doing this podcast with Ricky on my lap right now. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Actually, uh, when I pitch, when I pitch the ringer, when I pitch the ringer, but is that Peter Farrelly had me come in to pitch to Hutch Parker at the time was, was one of the heads of, of Fox. And, <laughs> At the beginning, it's just so shocking that I'm saying, okay, I want to do a movie about a guy who pretends to be retarded to fix the Special Olympics. And I think Peter saw this look of horror as if maybe Hutch was about to shoot me and then put a gun in his own mouth. Because, because what, <laughs> and because what he's saying is this, is when you, when you want to pitch and you're at a certain level when you're pitching, like the Farrelly brothers, you, they're always trying to get you to say, okay, could you just tell us the log line of what this is before no, but, you but come he, in? But he, in other words, what he did is he wanted me to pitch the full story, but he had the executive come to the, their office to do it. And what ended up happening when Peter saw the horror in his eyes, he, keep in mind, me and Peter did not know each other before this at all. He came over to me, put me on his lap. And as I was pitching it, he was doing like puppet gestures. As if this, <laughs> so it was kind of like, look, Hutch, little guy on big guy. Not retarded, shiny object, and he, and he kind of like forgot all about it and was amused by it. And I think at the end, they never thought they were going to make that movie. It was always like, okay, the Farrellys are these powers of something about Mary, immediately after something about Mary, we're going to do this. It's a passion project for him. We'll shut them up. And then eventually they, they kept on giving us hurdles like, well, okay, get the Special Olympics support which they thought would be impossible in a movie like this. And it was like, yeah, we see, we see what you're trying to do. Listen, you know, a Dick Glover, who was a guest on the show, he was approached for Talladega Nights and Jimmy Miller and Will Ferrell and Adam McKay knew that they would never, the movie wouldn't be successful unless they had NASCAR. NASCAR does not want anything having to do with redneck comedy. As a matter of fact, Going back, I, this is a running theme here. Jay Moore was the first comedian ever to perform on any event for NASCAR, and it was in 2004, about 45 years after the company and the organization was founded, because they've always been afraid people would go up and do uh, redneck jokes. They've never hired a Southern comedian to do wow. a NASCAR event, but yet Dick Glover figured out a way 
when he was in NASCAR to sell Talladega Nights to them when people thought they would never, ever happen. But anything's possible. And if if you, you, just, you see the humor of it and you see, you see, yeah, because yeah, there's some, I think sometimes the, the, the actual targets of it aren't as dumb as the people protecting you. Those targets are the, the, the people who always say like, oh, they're going to like the audience is smarter than what people think. Like, like when I said the Jewish episode in Family Guy, once again, really clear that the idiot is Peter, not the Jewish person. That the, it, Peter's an absolute idiot for, for doing what you could have got done in all in the family in a second thirty years ago. But I can see how you your I can see your winning formula. I can see how you go in. I can see how you do things. Like when I was telling the story about Mike Donovan and that woman and how emotionally crippled she was, what you did instinctually is something. Again, I'm not saying there's any risk in this room on the couch with anybody or on this podcast. But the point being, I'm telling the story. It's a very emotional story. She finishes her d diatribe or whatever. She walks up the sta stairs and there's like a heaviness in the air. There's a sadness in the air. And instead of you going along with it, you with your winning formula, think to myself, what can I do here? I'll take an extra second, an extra second, and your comedy mind and your edge says, what a bitch. <laughs> and so, and, and I know you're not sitting here thinking to yourself, what a bitch, but you took that moment. No, what a bitch. Okay. Maybe you are. <laughs> All right. So when you find out, even though you kept an eloquent defense, you just find out, oh my God, he's a little monster. <laughs> no, 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 actually, actually you, you but, have but it, but the fact, you have it right. But the fact is, is that you, I can see how you go into these places and you pitch and you, and it seems like you present yourself, your winning formulas like the underdog. You know, you appear like the guy who's lived at home until he was 32. It was very much. I mean, I had something that I that I've for about 10 years. I kind of withdrew and 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 didn't. But your brother, you were in your brother's shadow too. Well, the weird thing about it, that's one one great thing I'll say the way my parents raised us is I never had that feeling because believe me, if there's anybody that, that could have grown up envious or feeling like somebody was getting special treatment, my brother was somebody that it took me. Till I was about 22 to, to, to actually manifest what I thought I could do. And All right. Writing. So let's, let's so, go, let's go back to that because I, I want to talk about that. So you realize that you can do it. You, you, your first thing that you ever put pen to paper in your entire life right. gets bought and you get a check for 8,000. The second thing you write uh, doesn't get made, but you it gets bought same, exactly by the same. So thing. another, so you're 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 two for two starting out your career, so that gives you a confidence level. But why are you still living at home until you're 32 well, the, the, if you got that well, kind of confidence? Well, the weird thing right about off? it is, I, I went I went to film school, American Film Institute. I got into there, and I went there for about a year, and I realized. I knew nothing about anything. Like I, I had exactly what you're describing, and it's really accurate. I thought I had a, an, an, a, a better opinion of myself than I deserved, thinking that oh, I knew all these things. Then I went to film school here for people who had written screenplays and written all these things, and I realized, what the fuck? I don't know anything. I really don't. And let's analyze that for a second. Right. All the people that you went to film school with, how many do you think sold their first two things they wrote? Uh, I'll tell you, right. zero. 
But I, I think, you know what it was? It, it, it was an honest self-appraisal because when I went there, I met good friends who, were, who who I realized, oh, I thought I knew all this stuff. And it was, what am I talking about? No, but you're saying read. you don't know anything. These people who know everything haven't sold shit. Right. And you don't know anything and you sold two things. Maybe we all didn't know anything. You know, in, in, in a way, a lot of us didn't, but it really hit me hard. And I have like a kind of OCD that's not like that you see in, in the movies. Like when I see As Good As It Gets, I would go like, oh, that's the fantasy kind of OCD I'd love to have, you know, the fun, the fun, cute Hollywood way, where it's more <laughs> like with me almost repeating things or whatever. And I think I, I, I came to Hollywood before I was ready. And, when did you come to Hollywood? Well, I, when I was around 22, you know, after I sold those scripts, but you said to, you... I went to film school and I went back. I went, but what ended up happening is I, I, I said, okay, all you have to do is write this spec script, which is in a sample script for an existing television show, give it to an agent. And that's, that's the currency they use to try to get you on, on a show to do start yeah, your Yeah, that's career. what happens. You write a spec script and a spec script is normally for those of you who don't know is you pick any show. What you try to do is you try to pick a top five show right. in the genre that you feel you're strongest in. So in other words, if you're, if you like writing dramedy, you'd probably write like a nurse Jackie. If you want to write, if you're, if you want to write a multi-camera comedy and you're wondering like what, should I do? You, you probably look at the uh, Modern Family or uh, Big Bang Theory. Or or Big what, Bang yeah, Theory. Yeah. If you want to do a single camera comedy, you might write a spec script on maybe Thirty Rock when it was on. Or I'm right. trying to think of something now that's a um, that's a popular show. That's yeah, I wrote so, I, when I moved. I, I wrote and, Seinfeld just thinking yeah, that that, yeah. That, that that was the one. And that so was, uh, and so you go and you write an episode that's never been written, and you the, what they're looking for. These people, agents, managers, um, literary agents, um, even attorneys sometimes, and even shows that you know people who are friends of yours on. What they're looking for are a couple different things for those you writers out there who are starting. They're looking for one thing that you find out when you write a script that's a horrifying thing if you're a great joke writer is that story there's two major parts to a script that people really pay attention to the way you tell the story mm -hmm. and how many laughs there are per minute in the script and when you're putting a script together and you're editing a script and you're putting it together to be shot story always trumps jokes so you'll see jokes being cut out to put story in and you're hoping that the actors that you've cast in the half hour can have the nuances in their eyes and their face like Carol O'Connor on All in the Family did when he was sitting in that chair with his eyes or Ben Stiller and something about Mary when he reacts to something without speaking. You're hoping that your actors through the story can bring out the comedy that you lost in a joke. And so the main things they're looking for after that are that you can write for each character and the personality of each character and how they interact with each member of the cast. And if you can nail those three things in a script and have a script that's so far superior to anything they've done, keep in mind, you're sending something in, they've already got an executive producer, they've already got a showrunner, they've already got several... Uh, producers. They probably got uh, probably a staff of at least 12 writer producers. Every one of them got the gig and they don't want to lose the fucking gig. Mm -hmm. 
So for your script to even be considered by an agent or if you have a friend on a staff or something, imagine if, like when Ricky's executive producing shows, this happens to him all the time, and we'll talk about this. It's like if he's on a show, like let's say his show gets picked up, the show No Place Like Home, which I pray it does, with Jane Kaczmarek and John Heater. Already, the moment he shot the pilot and it's done, you might think he's like, Oh, I feel so great. We finished. We're done. I can guarantee you the moment the bell rings and they're saying, hey, the party's in the other room, he's thinking to himself, okay, what writers are going to be available? Who do I want to bring on? I got a friend who's on this show. Got to see if I can extradite him from that or whatever. So Ricky already has a list of all the people that he wants on a show, except for maybe some baby writers, always a slot for a baby writer. And for those of you who don't know, a baby writer is a minimum wage writer who probably hasn't really done a lot, or it might be somebody who's done something who's a little down on their luck and they want to get back into something and do something. So if I were to put a true serum in Ricky's veins and I were to say, you got picked up for 13 episodes, I guarantee that he could go home tonight and make a list of all the people he wants, and there would be more than the slots that he has for his staff. And so because of his experience and who he wants and who he's worked with, and there might be writers that he's worked with that aren't necessarily great at jokes, but they're great at story. He might There might be other people that he works with that couldn't write a story to save their life, but when they're in that room punching it up, they're like in another league. There might be people he likes having around who are average writers, but they're great morale guys in the room and you just always want them there and they don't get paid a lot of money and they make sure you have a good room and a good staff and there's no tension and they're always the foil or whatever it is. So when you're writing a spec script for the writers that don't even bother sending it in, if it's not like you know, 10 times better than any other script you've ever read, because forget it. You're not going to, you're not going to make your mark. When I was doing the show action, there were two guys and they wrote a dark. I know exactly what you're talking about. I I, I read that. What was that spec script that everybody knew about? It was, I think a a dark full house. Yes. 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 So they wrote a full house spec that was the edgiest, most incredibly powerful, funny thing you've ever read that would never get on full house, but they decided to take a risk and do something differently that had never really been done before. And they thought, Hey, we're young. What the fuck? We're not going to get an impact sending in an everybody loves Raymond spec. Let's do something that will really get people's attention. And what's fascinating is you remember that script, but Don Rio and Chris Thompson hired them. They were a writing team which made them more valuable because you can get two guys for the price of one for 3300 and some odd dollars at the time. It was a steal, and they ended up doing great stuff. They did that animated show drawn together for Comedy Central, and I've always loved them and think they're, they're great. So with you, uh, not to ramble on here, which I did, but you figured out a way always to write stuff that got people's attention. Although the, at the very beginning, it's describing like, I took I, the, that's why what you said is very helpful to writers to know that if you think you're brilliantly funny or whatever, if you let that overshadow, if your first spec sample script overshadow character and story, you'll be screwed. Because what happened with me is that Canadian producer that I wrote for, he was he had a kind of a name in the states as well, and he he recommended me to his agent at William Morris at the time, and, and 
I went in at the time. It was when Newhart had that show about Newhart and his his inn in Vermont, whatever. Daryl, Daryl, and Daryl. Daryl. I wrote a, I wrote a spec script for that, and I what I wanted to do, thinking that what would come easiest for me that I had to learn story and other things was writing funny lines. And I packed that thing with funny lines and all these characters. I gave it to the William Morris assistant who called me back and said, this is the funniest thing I've ever read. And I'm thinking, oh my God, my career is about to start. Then the agent got on the phone with me and said, it's really funny, Ricky, but you haven't done anything right here. You've packed them up with all your own characters instead of the main characters. You know, instead of, you know, I've made myself the star of it as opposed to showing that I could write for characters and story. And he said, write me another one. And at that point, that's why when I Which said- Which is I, very frustrating because he probably spent like four to six weeks making well, sure that th- one was the right. The weird thing about it is I, I, I was taking a lot of old material I had and put putting it in and whatever. And I, so I hadn't really learned the craft yet. And and that's when I said, well, I wasn't just being self-deprecating before about coming and realizing I didn't know anything when I was 22 coming to film school here. I realized I don't know the, the gist of putting together this script, whatever. So that- Come back with me in a, in a month. Send me a script. Became ten years. That was like one of those movies where you go cut to ten years later. Where I went back to Canada and said there was so much pre- combination of my OCD and stuff. I had this thing that somebody once said to me <laughs> was profound, but it, but I had this really fucked up way of looking at life, which is as long as I don't try, I still have my dreams. As long as I didn't write that one sample script and send it and get rejected, then I could continue to to have a chance. And only by Going against that, when I finally moved, to, when I was about 31, 32, I was rock bottom financially. I, I, you know, I went to my parents and said, this is one thing I know I could do. If you could just loan me some money, just get me through a few months in L.A., which they did. And but, but Ricky, why uh, eight years earlier or whatever, you had the chance, the agent believed in you. All you had to do was go back and put pen to paper. I don't think I knew what I was doing. Truth, truth, truth. But why did you know what you were doing when you were at rock bottom? I think because that I think it, it, in a sense, for me it was a scary thing because from an early age I'd been told you're you're funny. This is something that that you could do well. I had no other like I had no other fallback position. I know whoever you pronounce his name, David Mamet, the the David Mamet, yeah, yeah. David Mamet, the playwright once had had a book about acting once, and he said something like, "True or false?" True, and he said he said, "Don't be worried if you don't have a fallback position. That's one of the best things for an artist because a lot of people do have some other skill they could do. I didn't, so it was like." I think I had to wait for things to get so bad that I had to shatter all these kind of bullshit things in my mind of like, like I didn't have the luxury anymore to, to be neurotically worrying what if I write this and like I just kept on putting it off and putting it off and when I couldn't put it off any longer, I sat down and it just came out naturally. How bad were things when you went to your dad for the money? Super bad. I was on welfare. In, in, in Montreal. I was living in Montreal. I, and I think it became it more melodramatic where all of a sudden my mother was going like this son who I think is, is really talented and really smart and all this kind of, you know, like it, it was about as full a journey as you could take. Because like I said, I'm not, I wasn't kidding around when I say there's nothing else I could do. I was living in Montreal where I'm not fully bilingual and most of those jobs there are French. And I basically looked and I, and I went, in a sense, that's the best thing I ever did is I was taking telemarketing type jobs. I used to joke that I did these telephone interviewing jobs because <laughs> I was too depressed for telemarketing. Like telemarketing, <laughs> when, when somebody calls you with telemarketing, it's like, hey, ma'am, how are you? This is Ricky calling. How you, How's your day? And they're going, what are you selling? I was the best telephone interviewer in the world because it sounded like the next second I was going to shoot myself. <laughs> it would be kind of like, hi, this is Ricky. I'm calling from Market Facts. Would you be more likely, less likely? 
not likely at all to try this shampoo, whatever. People <laughs> people would give, say, this is probably the last human this person is going to talk to. Let's, let me answer any one of his questions. And I was great at that. Because but then I would, but then I would go home and I'd go. That was all you had to do. So many hours of that minimum wage just to cover some shitty apartment, and you had no time to write. The time that I said, you know what, things are so bad that I can't even do it English language in Montreal. I had a roommate, a friend that was helping me out, and I just said, the what saved my life really was the welfare thing because then I was able to just start writing during the day without that without that pressure. And I, like I said, when then even a case came some point where my roommate said, I thought you were going to be really trying if I took you in and helped you out. And he just he put me on my own. And that's when I realized that was the rock bottom thing where I couldn't anymore do the bullshit of like, like for about 10 years, I had this thing where I would go into, I'd work at a shitty job, like a telephone job. I'd look at Hollywood reporters to pretend that I was doing that. Oh, this is this show. And this is what I'm going to do one day. And then you realize. I'm not doing anything. I'm not taking any step towards that. And when I was broken, when things were really bad, it was like I had to give myself no other option, no other option to play any mind games. You know, that's why if anybody ever has any kind of thing about I'm delaying trying, try, because boy, did I have it wrong when I thought that I, I put all that pressure because I said, here I am in Montreal. People are saying that you will have a career entirely or not have a career if you write a half-hour sample script. If they don't like it, you're, you're dead. You have one contact. And when I came to L.A., I realized, you know what? That script didn't get me represented. I came to L.A. with three scripts. None of them got me represented. But the agents there said, I think you have something. Can you keep on writing? There's momentum. One thing leads to something else, and you meet somebody else. Whenever you think of it in that absolute way, like I had it so wrong before, and I think I would have done that forever, if I hadn't, if things hadn't gotten so bad that I think at some point I realized I don't have the luxury to worry about, I am failing, I'm doing nothing. So why don't I do, you know, why don't I just do this? Because there's no alternative anymore. And once you did that, you just started working. And the only way you get better is by actually working. So yeah. you go to your dad, how much money does he give you? I, 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 uh, I think he gave me about 5,000 bucks. 5,000, you come to LA, um, who do you see first? You know, I the, the only people I knew, the people that were like these huge benefactors to me, one of the two of the nicest people, Daryl Vickers and Andrew Nichols were the were the head writers for Johnny Carson's Tonight Show at the end of at the end of his run for about the last four or five years, and they were from Canada. And they when I was <laughs> when I was desperate there, I I showed them my new heart script. They were doing this TV show in Canada. Now you showed them the. Old New Heart strip old, that, that was packed was, with it, or yes. you showed them one you revived? No, I not the one. I I showed it to them before I showed it to that to that. Okay, or it might have even been after. And they're just such great joke guys. They appreciated that aspect of it, and they became fans. And they became like, it's so rare for writers to take that to be that kind. So they read your stuff, they like it. Then what? What do they do for you? Well, at some point, they they after the Tonight Show, they got very hot with a few different sitcoms. They. When they were at the pilot stage, they said they were going going to hire me, but they didn't go forward. Those shows didn't go forward. And then finally they had some show years later when the WB Network was starting up, The Parenthood with Robert Townsend. Mm -hmm. uh, not the best creative fit him with, with with them, but 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 they called me up. And I always admired those guys because even though they knew me and were fans, they were like, they were going to read 3,000 scripts. They were going to read every script, you know, uh, 
before they they decided on it. And by that point, that's when I had my Seinfeld spec where I matured as a writer and suddenly was writing, putting a story together as opposed to just writing jokes. And they loved it and they hired me off of that. And I that was my first credit. And they hired you as a minimum wage writer. And as a staff writer. And, and making like 3300 a week. Yeah, and that's why it's, it's, it, you don't empathize that much when you refer to minimum wage and you realize that was, you know, because even at that point, that's... Life well, because changing. that's a, that's an enormous. People don't understand, you know, uh, thirty three hundred a week is a, unbelievable. Uh, is unbelievable. The union is unbelievable. To and I, and I'm I'm going literally from making five dollars an hour, <laughs> like in telephone stuff like that, to to that. You know, I mean, it it it, it was bizarre. And then you then you, the other thing happens where you realize, wait a second, I'm not really getting to do much creatively here. Like you just asked me about the Foxworthy thing before. I I the, the Jeff Foxworthy show. I got to do. Nothing. They had like a, the staff writers weren't even welcome in the room. It was just kind of like I would go amuse myself with Foxworthy and just say to him like, "I'm going to write myself in as your wacky Latina neighbor or something like that." I think he, I was the one guy on staff he kind of liked talking to because I just I just remember being at the rap party for that thing and having nothing in the show. We did it at some I think at City Walk in some country restaurant there or whatever. I remember walking by. Looking at a picture of Barbara Mandrell. Why do I remember this stuff? I don't know. And just saying, man, she's the hottest woman in the world. And he gave me this triple take. And I said, I'm just, I'm the saddest man in the world. Yeah. Just, just <laughs> I would have this thought for Barbara Mandrell. I, but yeah. but uh, what's interesting for you is that you got in, you got in the door. And for anybody listening, you know, that's who, the hardest, who hasn't, that's the hardest part. Who hasn't gotten in the door yet. The key is just to get in the door anywhere. And I say that anybody who's even like, let's say you're somebody who, let's say, moves to a new city and you want to find a job. Look, if you can get yourself 20 interviews, just get yourself 20 interviews. What are the chances that you're going to go 0 for 20? You'd have to you'd have to take a dump on the desk of the person that's there 20 times to go over 20 unless you're devoid of any kind of sense of personality or whatever. The trouble with our country, and I don't know if it's the same with Canada is that all through your life, you go through all these classes and, you know, from when you're in kindergarten all the way through fifth grade and then middle school, sixth, seventh and eighth and then high school, ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th and college. And there's not one class that's concentrated on, hey, we're going to talk about what happens when you go in the real world yeah, and how to sure. interview mm -hmm. with somebody, how to sit down, how to take a meeting, how to sell yourself, how to present yourself. Not one class you can register for to do that. Mm -hmm. And so our society is geared to the point, it's the same with the agency world. For those of you who are agents or anybody listening, it's like the weirdest part about it is, most agencies never have seminars on how to sign a client, how to sit in a room across from a client and get them to be in your agency. They just rely on the fact that, hey, these guys are agents, they're salespeople, they'll get it done. I used to, I used to be amused also by the sometimes I would hear like, like an, a trainee at CAA or something, and I'd hear some story about maybe he went out. CAA Creative Artist Creative Agency, Artists, one of the greatest agencies in the world. I remember hearing you one can see it right from this window. Exactly. But I remember hearing one story about how they sent an, an, uh, an assistant out to get muffins or something like that. And he came back with the wrong muffins. And they were being ab abusive. And they were doing it like, like 
as if this was some metaphor, some lesson for him in terms of when he became an agent of not taking no. And I just found that the funniest goddamn thing because there, because there's no way that wasn't just an outlet for cruelty. Hollywood is nothing but people being allowed to be cruel to people below them because people shit on them from from top. There was there was no metaphor there. It's not like I was imagining my agent being on the phone and saying, God damn you, sir, you didn't take Ricky. Blit. Like yeah. whatever lessons they took from that muffin, it would be, oh, you don't like Ricky? Yeah, he's kind of sucks. Okay, my next client is, <laughs> that, 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 that's the reality of it. But it's but it's but it's like that they they engender that kind of thing. But but yeah, and but getting back to what I was saying is that you gotta get in, figure out a way to get in. If any job, it doesn't matter what you want to do, figure out a way to get in the ground floor. If you just get anywhere, if you can get an internship, you can do anything. If you are the hardest working person and the smartest working person and you have a great personality and you engage people and make them feel safe, you will move up the ladder. You were a baby writer on that show, The Parenthood, okay? Now, I know you're not going to call them out, but on that show there were probably 12 other writers or 11 other writers of all different capacities. You were the lowest of the low on the pie chart or whatever of all the people on the show yet i can guarantee you that there are other writers who are on that show that are out of the business right now you're not out of the business you completely took off literally the guy who was the president of abc says you're my fucking guy i'm i'm hitching my fucking wagon to you you know, Jane Kaczmarek and John Heater, these are not stiffs. These people don't sign on to things because they need money. Yes, perception is always not reality. Is Jane Kaczmarek and John Heater the multi-multi-millionaires that the world thinks they are? Probably not, because they don't take a lot of gigs and they don't do a lot of gigs. But the fact is, they still can work. But they chose you. They chose to be with you and to work with you. And you chose to work with this project. And you went from a baby writer to that, which means that when you get in and anybody listening, if you can just get in and be undeniable and better than anybody else, you will always rise. And even if, God forbid, that you don't, and using a sports metaphor like Wes Welker for the New England Patriots, he worked his way up. He was traded from Miami he was he was good, but he wasn't, and he worked hard. He was shorter than everybody else. I'm talking to a guy who's shorter than a lot of people. Well, didn't have to point. That he out. was a little. <laughs> he was a little more a little awkward than everybody else. From somebody else, but go on. Sorry, he was slower than every wide receiver. And the fact is, he worked hard, and he got that one year where they gave him, they protected him, they gave him ten million dollars for that one year. And he went out that one year, instead of just resting on his laurels and taking the money, he worked even harder. And he had like 130 catches. He had like literally like 30% more catches as a wide receiver than anyone in the entire professional football league. And what did New England do? They said, you know, well, if you want to stay, we'll give you $5 million. So there are times where you can be the best and where you're at or the show you're at or the place you're at doesn't respect you because you're there and they try to fuck with you. But the great news is if you do great work like Wes Welker did, there's always another team that's going to say, you know what? Hey, if they're stupid enough to let you go, 
we're going to take you, you immediately. Also, also and Denver to took Denver. him, yeah. and he went to the Super Bowl. And so that's the same that happens with you as a writer. You were in. There's people that didn't get the opportunity again, but you moved up. And you kept moving up because of your work ethic, your navigational skills, and also your winning formula of the guy who's like, oh, shucks, you know, I'm just a guy from Canada who was on, you know, I'm just glad to be here. And people love that. People love the fact that they look at a guy who's the underdog. And then when he opens his mouth, it's like, Holy shit! This guy is the smartest and funniest guy. And Family Guy, I used to, I, Family Guy, I used to go over to every writer and say that I was going to fuck their wives. And, <laughs> and basically, once again, as 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 the five foot two guy is the most harmless man in the world, I used to fantasize that one guy would either take a swing at me or glare at me like as if I was a real man, as if I was <laughs> like I could back up anything I just said. I thought you were gonna say you used to fantasize about fucking their wives. So, but. Yeah, no, that I did. <laughs> but I'm just I'm just so darn cute and unassuming that they just said, Oh, okay. You now, didn't hurt now me. before I get into the last parts of this stuff here, uh what's your personal life like? You you always joke about it, you joke, hey, you got nothing, whatever, but you know, women Woody Allen was like always called one of the sexiest guys in the world yeah, that's not one I've he got all the women he wanted whenever he wanted them because he was funny and he was affable and he had confidence and he had that winning formula but he was like sort of pretended he didn't have confidence but he did but the funny thing is what that, about you what I mean, how do you navigate through the personal life and then and honestly okay let me get a real honest i'm engaged now okay so where where'd you meet the woman this story will tell you everything is after <laughs> after after i did my, that I'll, I'll show that, that I wasn't pleased with the result of what the network did to it, but I, it started off good. But the, the Alyssa Milano show, okay, so, something that I when I did that show, there was people writing trying to save this show, and there was this one guy, this really funny, uh, Toronto a guy from Toronto, an Indian guy living with his parents who was thirty years old, had this really funny blog. If anybody wants to look it up, tremendousnews.com, and it was really. You know, it just was really funny, and, and he wrote a funny letter to ABC, on, ironically enough, to Steve McPherson to try to save our show. And um, this guy said, I want to interview you on the site, because Alyssa had said, this guy's really funny. I went went ahead with it. And we did this kind of silly, uh, like, AOL chat, IM chat, just back and forth. Like, it started off with me saying that I once broke up the writer's room, not trying to be funny on purpose by saying the most happiest day of my life every day is listening to my two cats eat. And I was saying that as if that was like a universal thing that everybody would go, oh, yeah, yeah, I got that. You know, just, and and so he made a joke, you're single, right? And we just had this long, like, long interview. If you're a guy and you're living alone, you have cats, exactly. you're single. Something, so, so so he, at the end of this thing, at the end of this interview, he, 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 we haven't spoken yet. He's this guy in Toronto with about 25,000 followers. He has a lot of female groupies writing in. He calls me up after the interview and says, you know, I should say that a lot of so there've been some women, some fans of mine who've been writing, wanting to meet you. And he, and this is, he said to me, no, you're a big Hollywood writer. I'm sure you're swimming in pussy, but he'll, and he, and he went on. And, I, and my, my attitude was, you know, do go on because nothing is happening for me because I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing anything to make things happen. You don't mind if I name this episode swimming in pussy, do you? No, you don't. <laughs> or, or not swimming in pussy as as, as more more appropriate. No, that would be my episode. Oh, be, yeah, no, but that that was that. I mean, because because ironically, this guy living with his parents in in Toronto 
was getting all this action. I wasn't. He was looking at me like, you're the writer I want to emulate and become like. And I was trying to explain. And when I finally met him, he's this very talented guy, Deepak Sethi, who I got, uh, who I helped get a job on Family Guy as a writer. A after this, I said, if somebody's going to hook me up with consensual sex for the rest of my life, <laughs> he's he's going to be working. But 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 Deepak is, is very funny. But the first time I met him, he, had, he has this very much confederacy of duns guy lo lo living at home loser kind of thing and this guy he'd laugh hearing this because i always joke about he's not especially great looking guy but is a surreal playboy and the first time i met him he was like i had read his blog about all this kind of self-deprecating confederacy of duns oh, i'm this fat loser at home with my mother who never has seen a girl naked and all that stuff and i met him and i said i th all that stuff that i read in your blog and he went yeah, that's that was my persona, and kind of, and I went, yeah, that mine wasn't. <laughs> you know, I was kind of being. But being, now, but uh, but women were writing to him saying, "Listen, I want to hook up. Funny, I want to hook up with this guy." So they were actually saying in the note, "Look, I just want to meet and hang out and have fun with this guy. I don't care if anything and the, happens." And the, there was one of, that was more of a that was a substantial person that wasn't like a silly. A, how many were there? That how many women did you sift through? I didn't sift. The funny thing is, there was there was like a few that he mentioned, and there was only one that I looked at, and that there was one that I had a real. Okay, so you reach with. out to her. Where does she live? She lives in Cleveland. Cleveland. Okay, so you reach out to her, and you say, "Listen, uh, for, nice to meet you, and whatever." And how do you meet for the first time? For the time? first two or three months, we texted, and we we kind of did, you know had an exchange of kind of texting and and, and uh, IMing and whatever. And then and was she older than you, younger than you? Uh, younger than me. Got it. Okay. And and, and she was somebody that, that, that basically, it was like this crazy kind of connection to the, to the point where even I have two cats. One of my cats, two cats named is, is Yager after the hockey player, Yaramir Yager. And one of her two cats is named Lemieux, who is Mario Lemieux, who played on the same line with Yager. Kind of weird stuff like that. But we, for about two or three months, we started corresponding like that. And we didn't, it kind of emboldened. When did the us. when did the cats meet each other? The cats the, the cats haven't fully met each other. Okay, yet. just checking. That, that will, that will All right, so, uh, so when do you meet her for the first time? And how does that happen? Tell me that story. Well, I, after about a few months, it was like, okay, this is a big thing. We're, we're emboldened. You become more emboldened to because say the thing things is, because you're not because, seeing each because other. Because the thing is, is that this is the interesting thing about meeting somebody who's from another place. Right. The first time that you are going to meet that person, uh, for those of you who probably already know this, is that you're, one of you is traveling to the other person's turf. Right, that was her. And right. when you go to another person's turf, there is something in the back of your mind more than something else that, hey, listen, we're going to end up in the same room together somewhere. Right. Uh, as opposed to meeting somebody in the same town and going on meeting for the first time, you know that you're, you can, you know, meet for lunch or dinner and then it's going to end. You get to drive your own way. Somebody's making a commitment to fly to a certain place. They're staying overnight and the chances are that something is going to happen. I put her in a Ramada Inn. You did? <laughs> a Motel 5? <laughs> so you flew her to Toronto? Well, I, or flew her to LA? I flew her to LA. Okay, so you flew her to LA, you put her up where? Well, for, uh, she stayed at my place. And, uh, she, okay, see what I'm saying? Yeah. And see, I, what, now, see what I'm saying? But, but for, the first, for the first few months... Now you, That's okay, I'm right. just saying. So she stayed at your place. Now, the first night you were with her, did you sleep on the couch as a respectful gentleman? Yes, I did. Actually, I did sleep. I am so proud of you. That's the way you get a woman. <laughs> by, the, by the way, that's... <laughs> 
I like how <laughs> sexual fear has become something worthy of admiration. It is for me. <laughs> I was so I was so, out. But she appreciated that you slept on the couch. Well, I think I think we had connected so so in a more honest way by texting and doing all that stuff where you're braver to say certain things than you would be on a awkward first date or something. By the time that we met each other, we felt we knew each other so well. Now what happens, you you have a great connection. What happens if Jagger doesn't like her? What would that have would that have made a difference? Probably, yeah. Okay, just checking. <laughs> There'd be no chance of that. All right, so she day. stayed here for how long? Well, she's she's uh, we've been engaged for a few years now, and she her father unfortunately isn't isn't well, and she's helping take care of him in Cleveland, and she has it, but she's a flight attendant and frequently comes to comes to L.A. So we get to see each other a lot throughout the you know throughout the year, but it'll be when circumstances are better that she'll be able to to move here. They say a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a guy if she's going to be with him. Did she know? I think so. Oh, the, the, the thing that made me laugh is that she said when she went back. If I can tell this story, she went back to to her mother and she said, mother asked about me and she, and she said, you know, she really had all these great things to say, but she said, he's, he's quirky, <laughs> you know, and then she said, uh, you're quirky. It's <laughs> like realizing, okay, true enough, true enough. And is she taller than you? Uh, the universe is taller than me, so yeah. Got him. She's uh, if she's I were, not, she, if she's I, not a little person, so if, she's taller than me. If, if I were to meet her and you together, would I look her in the eyes and say... Wow, this is wonderful. And when I look you in the eyes and say, "Ricky, this was not a lateral move for you," yeah, no, I, I, I think yeah, I think you would you would question her sanity. Okay, just but, but 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 that's what's fascinating. So because you you know you talk a lot about yourself not being a good looking guy. I, honestly, here, do you do you go? You wake up every day saying to yourself. I am not a no, good-looking guy. By the way, the, the funniest, the, fun, the funniest part of that, if we want a really truthful answer to that, is I don't have that. I have that image that obviously I know. I, I you know, I, don't, I won't get, you know, <laughs> Tom Cruise, whatever. But I, in, in other words, I, I don't have as bad a self-image as I do. But what really amused me is there was one time, I, I see all these self-deprecating things as part of, part of shtick or whatever like that. There was one time, L.A. Times. A reporter for the LA Times did a, an interview with me when when my Rob Corddry show came came out about five years ago, and 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 they, <laughs> and he was describing me, thinking, okay, I can do this because he's giving me license. By the way, he's talking about himself in all these kind of like extreme ways. And when I'm looking at it in the paper, I'm going, yeah, I'm kind of choking. Like I'm kind of do, like doing it in a self-deprecating way. I don't mean it to the extent that you do. So it was like. Yeah, no, I, I no because I think it's a you know we talk about a lot of things in business, but they all apply to your personal life and how you handle things and how you are, and that formula always seems to carry over to business. So, what fascinates me also is that you you know you met a girl, uh, but you only you only really went after a girl who you knew was interested in you. So you only pulled the trigger on somebody who you felt completely safe wouldn't pull the ripcord on you. You already knew that she would like you. Whereas in your professional life, it's just the opposite. You go for things where you don't even know if anybody's interested or not. You don't have any affirmation that somebody that's, says that's whatever. There, there is, there so is you're the yeah. complete opposite personally as you right. are professionally, which is very, very odd. Well, I think I think I wonder if that's true for... 
for a lot of people only because in the business in this business you have to be you have to be more fearless about it it's like but it's it is true. i don't think seth mcfarland is uh is is uh in his personal life different than his professional life oh god yes in other words, Seth, me and Seth are are, are are different versions of the same guy. Well, that's what I'm different. saying. Yeah, no, but I'm, but I'm saying, but Seth will will present himself in this kind of like, you know, almost rat pack, brat pack kind of like confidence and stuff like that. Me, me and Seth were both like the same, this the same kind of shy misfits, you know. Well, I mean, that's his winning formula. He goes right. out as the the guy like that, but your winning formula is you it's go out the like, opposite. Yeah. Well, me and Seth look opposite so yeah his thing is is to go again is to go against that and just pretend and act suaver than he really feels whatever. so when you first met seth if somebody asked you after your first meeting took you aside and says you know that guy's gonna host the academy awards no what, I mean, would, what would you have said well that just that's it was beyond absurd I mean, the first time i met him was i was a writer of family guy from the very beginning so i went in to interview with him and the and david zuckerman who was an exec producer at the time and 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 it was just bizarre. I mean, me and Seth had this <laughs> kind of bond where I think we we kind of knew that we were kind of similar or whatever. And, and and Seth was always very generous from the beginning of taking me aside and complimenting my writing and stuff. And I wasn't used to that. I was used to being on shows like the Foxworthy show where if you had a specific ability, it was to your detriment. It was like, try to stay with the exact same voice of this. Family Guy was the first one I ever found when it was like, oh, you're doing something really interesting and I really like your writing and it stands out. Like, I'm going to endorse that and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. So so that was uh, Seth, you know, Seth and, I'd say Seth and Peter Farrelly have been my two biggest mentors and helpers in the, in the business who believed in me to such a crazy extent and Tell our audience the greatest piece of advice that Seth ever gave you and the greatest piece of advice that Peter Farrelly ever gave you. I'm trying to think actually advice wise. I don't, I don't know if Seth, I don't know if Seth ever would have felt like entitled in a weird way. Like Seth, Seth didn't, he never, even though it was his show and it was, and I was, I was a younger writer on it. I, I don't, I don't think he took that. It's interesting because I don't know if I've ever gotten with Peter it would be more like he was the experienced guy in film and he would give me some really valuable things, valuable pieces of information for, you know, or for, for writing screenplays and things like that with Seth. I'm not sure other than just kind of going for what makes you laugh and just, just not, not, uh, what's something, what's something anybody taught you in this business that, made a huge impact on you and who was it there's a friend of mine david dorfman who's an incredibly talented writer wrote the movie anger management and uh he wrote the boss's daughter which was a brilliant script before it was made into you know where it was done uh, it was directed a certain way but 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 he i got a lot of valuable tips from him that's why when i told you about that when i went to film school yes i had sold a couple of scripts and somebody like that hadn't and we were about the same age is is i still he had had a lot much more experience in writing stuff. So he was able to give me advice like, say you think of an idea for a movie or a TV show or something. Well, think of 10 others and see if that's still the one that you want to do the most in a couple of days. Because sometimes it's the hardest thing is thinking of an idea. So sometimes you just want to, okay, I thought of something, I can go off and write it. Like little things like that, like the idea of just just trying and just just churning stuff out. Like I I, I feel like that... Like when you were giving that advice before about 
to people and for the business world, I really think, I think one of the worst things you do is when you're kind of that bratty kind of college age thing and you have this, you'll look at people who are making it who you don't think deserve to make it. Well, that's always going to happen. That's always going to happen. And you can't be small and look at it like that. You, if you, if you, I used to be cynical at that point and because it would make it easy for failure to just say, well, they hire these, these kind of people are making it and I'm not, and it's, it's ridiculous, you know, so it's not even worthy of anything. Uh, let's just write off on the sunset here a little bit and, uh, and ask you a few more things. Uh, tell me a moment in your career that, uh, something that happened in some show or some situation in your life that if you were to tell a person the story that they just would never believe it. It's like one of your highlight uh, chapters of your book. If you had one, I think one of the oddest is, is the Farrelly's did a movie stuck on you. And that, that was the one with the Siamese twins. twins. Yeah, Greg Kinnear and Matt Damon. And they gave me a little part at the very end of it. They had like, they were doing Bonnie and Clyde, the musical as like a regional theater <laughs> thing. And they, they had me in as an extra. And this is also going to go tie back to the thing of how I, at my size, I get away with murder. But Meryl Streep was in the movie. And and keep in mind, they have a, they brought in Adam Shankman, who's a, you know, very successful director, but also a choreographer to chor to choreograph this final thing. And we were in some place in Miami where they were shooting it and they were rehearsing this and there's all these dancers and they're going to give me an, they, I'm an extra. They, don't, they have not given me a line to say yet. And Meryl Streep is singing and dancing and doing all this stuff. We happened to be leaving at the same exact same time. And I held the door open for her and she did what a lot of stars, big stars do with self-effacing. Like I, I'm Meryl. And I introduced myself and I said, do I do this? And I keep in mind, I'm an extra. I have not, I had nothing to do. And she's singing and dancing her heart out for two hours doing, learning this song and dance routine. I turned to her and I said, Meryl, maybe I shouldn't say this to you because I don't know you, but I kind of felt you phoned it in tonight <laughs> and, it, and it affected my performance. So she grabbed my shoulder. She was laughing so hard. The next day we're actually shooting the we're actually shooting the scene. She's taking a break from the thing. She's like has her legs on some on some table and, and I walk around. I said, shit, am I gonna do this all? I went up to her and I said, Meryl, I honestly thought we had this talk yesterday. And she said, she said, Ricky, I'm kind of kind of preparing. I remember this all because it was such a surreal moment, but she said, Ricky, I'm kind of preparing. And I said, Is is this the kind of method acting bullshit that's gonna keep us here till midnight? And she said, okay, Rick. And she, she left. Then the, the very next day they gave me one line to do and they were doing coverage on me and she was there and she said, okay, Ricky, now you don't screw up. And I'm thinking, oh, is there any chance that maybe I'm not as cute as I think I am? And maybe I did, I did annoy her a little bit. And they had me, they had me do that with Gwyneth Paltrow in, in Shallow Hell. They, they had a moment where they said, just as a, I f flew the red eye to, to Raleigh, to Carolina, just, just to, to see the thing. And I, and, and they had me Go because they direct by was sitting in the in the trailer and they watch the the on the monitor. Then they go and give notes. And they said to me, "I just flew in the red eye. I was exhausted." They said, "I want you, without any explanation, to go over to Gwyneth Paltrow, and give the next note." And I'm thinking, please, you know. And I and, and they just they just insisted. They were giving me a real note to give her. And I when I what I did is I ended up. I didn't want to, you know, Peter was a hero of mine. I didn't want to let him down. So I went, I was nervous and I was walking towards and people are, and she's like an actress you don't easily approach. And people are wondering who's this odd little person walking towards. And I went over to her and I didn't remember what they said, but my, my only way is to go, is to do the opposite Seth thing. Like from what's right for me is to do the fake arrogant thing. And I kind of went up to her and I just said, Gwyneth, 
you know, I've been watching and you seem to have no conception where the camera is. <laughs> and I don't think I could work with that. And just, and she just, to her, to her credit, she was laughing. She immediately, and afterwards she said to me, like, I said, I'm so sorry they made me do something like that. And they, she said, it was hysterical. Who are you? And I said, I'm a writer friend of theirs. And I said, I do have other notes. <laughs> <laughs> she, walked, she walked back. But those, those were kind of things I almost did in a weird way, especially the Meryl Streep one, where, which I did on my own. The other one, Peter had asked, put me up to something, was also because maybe I looked at it like she's, I'd have heard she has a great sense of humor. People are always deifying her. And by the way, in an oddest quirk, quirk of fate, I'm doing, I'm supposed to direct another film script of mine that the studio just sent an offer out to Meryl Streep. I don't know if she remember. <laughs> Hopefully she well, doesn't remember this. I'm surprised but in the cover letter you don't mention it. I should, you know, I really should have, honestly, and because that, because I, th I do know she was highly, highly amused by it, but I, I think I was doing it in part just for the experience, but I'm not, I'm not fearless with that kind of thing at all. I just was like, I think I'd been set up a little by Peter's wife to, that this is a funny writer that we work with, so I was thinking maybe I should say something funny to her, but, but... <laughs> I think it was the next day after when I took it as far as the method acting bullshit, when I was thinking like, should I shut up now? Like maybe, maybe this is the first person that's not going to take out a tape measure and care how tall I am and just go like, I'm preparing buddy. Just fantastic. But she, she couldn't, have, she couldn't have been nicer, you know? Any, uh, family guy story for our audience besides the one about the script that, that might mean something to our audience. That's kind of crazy or kooky or something you experienced or, I, I, I guess it was just the, the lunacy of being a family guy where you'd go, you'd be in the room and then you'd go into the kitchen. There would be like one time we had an episode where Brian directs porn and there's like Ron Jeremy and Jenna Jameson <laughs> in the kitchen. And naturally not many of us ate that day, <laughs> but, but, there, but you'd go in and there were, there were, you know, I think that was like in family guy, there was a lot of those odd moments where people came in. I remember, yeah, just, just, just odd odd situations like like that but but i think that was there was such a normalcy that you'd be you were in the safe kind of at the time we weren't even on the lot so we had our own building in the valley now they have a building elsewhere in the mid wilshire area but 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 back then it was just like you felt like you were totally hidden from it i think the oddest thing for us is when we did the family the first family guy live show we did was of my episode when you wish upon a weinstein the jewish and we got to do that in montreal and that was the most bizarre experience to watch people but 800 people in an audience almost shouting out the lines in anticipation because we were all all these nerds like in a, in a room and all of a sudden you saw the impact the show was having on people where they were remembering lines and when Seth started to do voices like Stewie and stuff it was like amazing for us to watch because it would be like people elbowing each other like oh my god he's gonna do it and we're thinking like Seth is like a celebrity like that that's why the fact that it's, you know, he's such a talented guy that it makes sense that he's doing these things. But yeah, when I first heard the thing about <laughs> when he did the the Oscars, I was writing something for Showtime at the time. And I remember sending an email to David Nevins at Showtime. And I just, this is how fucked up crazy that Seth has made the world. I said, by the way, I'm hosting the Tonys tomorrow. <laughs> and his immediate thing right back to me wasn't, fuck. He, he had to ask it for a second because Seth had now re <laughs> redefined what was possible, you know. <laughs> That's right. Well, you uh, you redefine what's possible. Your biggest disappointment in show business? I think my biggest disappointment was 
I really like that Rob Corddry show, The Winner, and, and and there was a lot of networks. That was a, you know, Steve McPherson was one of the people that for ABC that called me right away, and all the networks were bidding on it. Nina Tassler, CBS were calling me, and at the time, Peter Liguri, who ran Fox, uh, you know, the, the Fox Network, bid for it, and we gave it to him, and it was a different kind of show, and they just stuffed it into like six episodes. Like he liked it so much, you saw how well it came out. He gave five episodes of the six to critics, which they never do. But he didn't give us a chance. He squeezed it into three nights and they're doing two episodes a night, which you can't do with with with, with the show. And that was, <laughs> to tell a story really out of school, is I was on the phone with Seth McFarlane <laughs> with, with uh, when we found out in New York when they were doing, like, for the upfronts, was when they announced their, their, new, their new shows for the, for the year, we found out they weren't renewing our show. After not giving us the chance, they said they were. And Peter Liguri was a nice man, but I, w- I was upset. Like he, I was on the phone with Seth. I had just found out from Seth that they weren't, because Seth came in as an exec producer on that show as well, the winner, because he believed in it so much. He said, I want to lend my name and help you with this. So, so I got a call from New York and it was Peter Liguri, the head of Fox, and it was his assistant saying, I have Peter, Peter Liguri on the phone. What prompted me to do it, I don't know, but I just went, no thanks. And I just didn't take the call. And I think for the assistant, it was probably the most confusing moment in her career. That never happened. And, and I got back on the phone and Seth had said to me uh, on the other line, he said, uh, you, uh, you, are, uh, you, you are my Jesus Christ. <laughs> he was just so incredibly <laughs> proud of that moment because none of it felt we were treated properly. And I look at Peter Liguri now with simp- simp- as if he was in a rough position. It's like, it's like pe- people maybe didn't get the show they weren't given the chance to do and he's he's not making an autonomous decision it was it was really tough and he was a good guy about it you know he and he had lunch with me after to explain everything it was it was it was a tough you know a tough sell at the time and Rob Corder who was brilliant but but you know it, it was earlier on or whatever it, it was but that i think dis- disappointment wise i think that was the biggest disappointment I had that that didn't go forward when we would have such strong assurances that we'd have more. But Steve McPherson, who was bidding for ABC, didn't get it, recognized you as a great writer, and now is working with you now. And so your proudest moment in uh, in show business is what? I don't know. I mean, in, in the just completing this pilot, which I feel so good about this No Place Like Home thing, when I just finished it. Like I, the very first pilot I did was with Johnny Galecki from Big Bang Theory. It was the first, it was actually the first version of the Rob Corddry thing. I did, I did, and that was... Isn't you know, it funny how relationships are, you know, this, your whole podcast here is littered with relationships and how they've helped you throughout your career and how you keep those relationships. They're, they're, by the way, they're, they're crucial in a way that I didn't even un- understand. Like, like to, to, when I looked at it, like, in a sense, that's something that should come in and of itself. There shouldn't be any motivation beyond that. The, the good people that you gravitate to or, or the people who believe in you are the ones you should stay loyal to. But beyond that, that really is what happened. Johnny was Galecki. Big Bang is the number one comedy on TV now. And it was like he wanted to get into producing. We got together for the first time in years. And I happened to have this script completed. And he said, we weren't even meeting about that script. He said, I'd just like to read what you've been writing lately. And said, he loved it and said, I'd like to love to make this my first producing thing. Same thing I met with McPherson. I, I wasn't meeting him for this. He was becoming a producer. And he read that and he said, I'd love to, you know, and what's interesting also as a showrunner and a creator, one of the things our audience should know is that when you write something, you have decisions to make at every level you're at. And the decisions you make often are creative decisions versus money decisions. Right. So if Ricky went forward with this project without Johnny Galecki, 
<clears throat> there is a good chance. I'm not saying it's a 100% chance. I'm not saying it's a 1% chance. But there's a good chance that he would have sold the show and gotten the pilot going. But he elected to work with something somebody felt safe with, somebody felt great with, and work with them and have them have a chance to do something the first time that they haven't done before like people did for him. In the end, in success, out of every $100 that's there to be made, he's going to make less than that $100, Ricky Blit, because some of that's going to go to Johnny Galecki. But Fuck, he, I didn't know that. <laughs> and it's the same with Steve McPherson. He chose Steve McPherson as a non-writing executive producer. Right. Steve McPherson is not a writer. So he's bringing something to the project with his experience. So he has to weigh that. He has to weigh, okay, if I bring Steve on, is the value that Steve's going to bring on going to be worth the amount of money out of every dollar that I make that's going to come out of my pocket and then go to him? And so sometimes you make decisions based on relationships you have and the value that they have. And sometimes you make decisions where you, at the end of the day, you know that you're giving up too much. But the feeling that you have inside of working with people who believed in you through your whole life is worth that amount of money. So by the forward. way, it's also being smart in a practical way because... I don't look at it like I do it because this is what I passionately like to do. If it's you get a little bit more or a lot more, if you hadn't done that, it's it's it. First of all, it makes it that much more possible that something like that will even go forward. You know, if you if you're if you're getting that kind of support, but so, so it but 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 yeah, that that enough should be to, that should be enough to guide you. Even just the fact that it's the right thing to do. But at the end of the day, sometimes people makes greedy decisions early on, and then you go. Well, that show won't. Wouldn't you rather have a huge chunk of something that is going to thrive and be a success rather than being too small-minded about it and just trying to get more of something that has less of a chance to succeed? All right, final question. I promise. Uh, what advice do you have for the person living at home at thirty-two on welfare, or anybody in this world who's struggling to figure out what they're going to do next and how they're going to be successful at it, whether they be an executive or an executive producer or writer, showrunner, or just a young writer, what things can they do to get to the next level to come full circle with the kind of trajectory that you've had in your career? I think the biggest thing I've learned of any advice to give to in any field would be if you truly have something and you're persistent, you are going to succeed. It's just going to happen whether it takes, whether it's, that's why even, even if you put yourself in, in some kind of situation at the beginning before you're ready, like somebody might not have, I didn't have the answers when I started. I was put in the right place at the wrong time. I didn't know what I was doing. I, you know, but, but if you have that kind of thing where you keep on trying and doing stuff, you, you'll learn. So I think, I think that's the biggest thing is, is, is realizing how wrong I had it when I thought all this pressure had to be in one piece of material I was going to send off. No, it's just one thing leads to something else leads to something else. And even if you start a job and you don't know what you're doing yet, you might be learning from people who in three years from now, you'll be going, okay, now I know more because I put myself in the right environment to succeed. All right. Thank you so much, man. This has been awesome. You are an inspiration. You are a good looking man. And uh, I. Your diary, Jackpot. <laughs> Thanks for everything. It really Thank was an honor. Much. Thank uh, you very much. All right. As usual, if you like the show, please tell all your friends. 
And if you didn't like the show, tell all your friends. This is Barry Katz and another episode of Industry Standard. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.